0: Get up in the morning, slaving for bread, sir, so that every mouth can be fed. Oh, Israeli. me, Israelite, Get up in the morning, slaving for bread, sir, so that every mouth can be fed. She said I was to Ooh, oh, oh, the other sea. Shut them my dear up, chose his ago. I don't want to end up like Bunny and oh, 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 Light. Desmond Decker and the Israelites. He's been dead for a while now. Um let me just look here real quick. Two thousand six. Wow. A lot of people don't give him the respect he deserves. Uh, He found Bob Marley. They were both welders together back in the, like, 50s. And um, Desmond had a record label, or he was signed to a record label, and uh, he never put out an album. Or it was, like, years before he put out an album. And then he spotted Bob Marley. Um, I don't know if they were playing at a club or something like that. And, uh, of course, Bob Marley's talent, I mean, he just took off, and he made a bunch of albums, kind of around the same time that Decker had his albums come out, and, I mean, you have one legend, I mean, Bob Marley's, as far as I'm concerned, his music isn't as good as as Desmond Decker. I mean, Desmond Decker is the godfather of ska, the godfather of pop reggae, but Bob Marley had more of a, um, uh, what do you call it, Uh, he was more marketable. So, of course, he took off, and now every college kid on earth has a picture of him in his uh, dorm. And Desmond Decker just falls to the wayside. No, he stays in the, um... (sighs) For us true uh, lovers of music, and um, if you like music history and you like to find out what happened, you know, where all this stuff came from, where did uh, the specials come from, the toasters, where did the Mighty Mighty Bostones come from, where did, um... Uh, really any of this pop ska that you hear, Blink-182, it's not ska, but it's that punk, or, or even the very, very foundations of punk. Uh, you can look at um, The Clash, or uh, even bands like Elvis Costello. It all kind of goes back to that that gritty sort of reggae ska pop that turned into the uh, the rock sound. So if you like that, check them out. Desmond Decker and the Israelites. So welcome, everybody, to the Wait Would If podcast. This week's Wait Would If podcast, I listened to Rob O'Neill talk about his experience in hunting Osama bin Laden. If you don't know who he was, he is the Navy SEAL who actually shot and killed bin Laden. Well, this team went into Pakistan in a covert mission with the idea that they weren't going to come back. After I heard that, I wondered, what is the mindset of someone that can do or perform a task under the idea that? they most likely won't return. It's happened a number of times in history and is truly something that needs to be explored in the human experience. But until we get to life, death, and how we approach it, I had an epiphany about the phenomena of millennials in government. This kind of piggybacks on last week's episode where I dissected the millennial phenomenon. It dawned on me after listening to Ocasio-Cortez speak with complete lack of knowledge on how economics work. You see, the founding fathers never expected the stunting of maturity that we're seeing in today's young adults, by which I mean 200 years ago, someone who was 25 most likely had the life experience to successfully hold an office as a congressman. And that's why the ages were set so low, 25 for, I believe, uh, uh, House Representatives, 30 for Senate, and 35 for President. But what they didn't foresee was that we would have a generation of individuals who are 30 years old and still living life like teenagers. Take, for example, track one. What do you say to those that um, criticize them pulling out that the district now is going to lose 25,000 jobs that could have come there? Well, one of those things is, A, we were subsidizing those jobs, So for, the the city was paying for those jobs. So frankly, if we were willing to give Amazon three, if we were willing to give away $3 billion for this deal, we could invest those $3 billion in our district ourselves if we wanted to. We could hire out more teachers, we can fix our subways, we can put a lot of people to work for that money if we wanted to. There, There is no $3 billion. She doesn't understand that they gave them subsidies To like a tax break so this company was coming in people were literally um, the local businesses the local tailors the local pizza shops the local um, restaurants were were literally counting the money I mean imagine imagine being a small business and you serve a population of 50,000 people and then someone says we're moving in a company that's going to have 25,000 more employees and uh, we're going to be opening up infrastructure well New York was like yes bring it in. We'll give you we'll give you 3 billion in tax breaks and in return you're going to have people spending money in their city. That's where the money comes from. There's no 3 billion that New York is giving them. That that doesn't exist. And it's a simple simple logical explanation because what she saw was a large corporation cuz kids hate corporations, and that's how she's acting. She's acting like a, a a, teenager in her first year of college. It's just, it's cool amongst young college kids to hate corporations as they use their Apple iPhones, as they use their Dell laptops, as they use their Apple Watches, um, their Twitter account. I mean, it, it's, it's absolute 100% hypocrisy at its best. And so what basically happened is we have a a bunch of children that are now eligible to run for positions of power. And then they come in and make huge blunders like this. And it was a complete and total, um, just, uh, just a dumb move on her part. So I think that's what, I think that's what it's, uh, it's coming down to. So the whole point of, of me getting to this was I figured her out. I figured her out. Um, she's got her, her, her head, I think is in a good place, or I should say her heart is in a good place. You know, my kids are, are four and five, and sometimes they come up with ideas that are in their heart are great, but they lead to total catastrophe, and that's what's going on here, and maybe we need to age these people out a little bit, uh, get them some experience, because what's her experience? She's a bartender. She went to college and has an economic degree, or a degree in economic, what, so? Anyways, the whole reason why we listen to our elders over youngsters is, is experience, and when your experience is bartending and going to a few socialist rallies, and all of a sudden your peers elect you for for Congress, it's frightening. It's a frightening thing. Do you remember when Panera Bread opened uh, a pay? <laughs> it was like five years ago. They opened up a bunch of pay what you want food chains, uh, restaurants. Everybody's welcome. Uh, it was it was your your socialist dream, right? They closed the last one down just recently, and do you know why? Because the homeless. <laughs> and freeloaders showed up around the clock to get free food, to use the bathrooms, to shoot up in the bathrooms, and basically ran these chains, these restaurants, to the ground. I shit you not. And this is the same experiment that they want to play out with the entire country. The only problem is, instead of shutting down a few restaurants, which will cost hundreds of millions, I would guess, it's going to cost the nation billions, or perhaps our sovereignty altogether. So that's all I have to say about that. What else is new? Uh, Hillary Clinton tweeted out that the biggest threat to the nation right now is gun violence. Hmm. Don't buy the relentless gun violence claim. Don't ever. They're constantly pushing this. The likelihood of you experiencing gun violence yourself is so minute. 250,000. Now that's a lot of people. 250,000 people globally are going to be killed by guns this year. That's out of 7.5 billion Okay, 39,000 U.S. citizens are going to lose their lives by guns this year. But keep in mind that 23,000 of them shot themselves. It was suicide. But that leaves us with 16,000, right? So that's a lot, 16,000 people. Well, 80,000 died last year of the flu. But this is a huge, huge problem, the 16,000. We can ignore the flu, and let's focus on this because it's a hot-button issue, because they know it's political and it'll gain them votes. So of that 16,000, 11,000 were criminals shooting criminals. Now, I know what you can say. It's violence. People don't deserve to die, and that's true. But if you're going to get in a gunfight of your own volition, then, yeah, you might die. So this leaves us with roughly 5,000 victims. It's still a lot, but compared to the 40,000 that they're selling you, it's it's a tiny, tiny percentage. What's it, 2.5%? So 2.5% of all the shootings is actually a victim getting shot. Now, five, like I said, 5,000 people. We lost 3,000 on 9-11. That was a big deal. So I get, I get it. And, and there are problems, and there can be conversations to be had about that. But it's not confiscating the guns because it's not a national emergency. I want you to also consider this. You're five times more likely this year to be burnt to death. <laughs> You're five times more likely to drown. So all the swimming pools in the world or in the, in the country are killing more people than firearms. You hear nothing about that. You're 17 times more likely to be poisoned. You're 17 times more likely to fall to your death. And you're 68 times more likely to die in an automobile accident. Let's look at it um, just by means of, of accidents, accidental deaths. So there's about 1,000 victims each year that drown in pools accidentally, and 150 people who are killed accidentally by firearms. Now, this is horrible, and I'm not by any means trivializing the death of a single kid because ho- I have kids of my own. I can't even imagine it. It's got to be horrible, heartbreaking. But keep in mind the fact that firearms outnumber pools by a factor of 30 to 1. So for every pool that's out there, there's 30 guns. This just highlights that the risk ratio, I guess you call it, of drowning in a pool is nearly 100 times higher than dying from a gun. But do you hear anything about that? Do the politicians care? No. I carry a weapon not because of my chances of having to use it. I don't. I know they're tiny. I carry it because it reinforces my values through action. My values, my top values, are personal liberty and self-reliance. It's the same reason I carry road flares, an axe, and a medical kit in all my cars. Because I believe heavily on self-reliance. I think if something happens, I don't want to have to wait for someone else. My actions speak for my beliefs, and my beliefs dictate my actions. And I feel that anyone who dares interfere with my choices, with my actions, by some misplaced data, are in direct conflict with what it means to be an American. Want to hear some other stats on that? 90% of all violent crimes in the U.S. don't involve firearms at all. So only 10% of the violent crimes, people are using guns. And in the crimes where the offender actually was holding a gun, 83% didn't use it. They didn't even threaten to use it. Of the 300 and, I don't know what it is, 350 million guns in the U.S., 1% of them will be used in the commission of crime. And it's also something like 1%, oh, 90% of the firearms or something like that. So not everyone even owns one. Two-thirds of the people who die each year from gunfire are criminals being shot by other criminals. Cincinnati um, checked into their gang problem, and they found out that 75% of homicides are committed by less than 1% of the population. Think about that. Gang violence. 92% of gang murders are committed with guns. And gangs are responsible for, they think, anywhere between 50 and 90% of all violent crimes. The majority, the overwhelming majority, since we're talking about gangs, of gun crimes are gang-related. So think about all the... And they're liberal. They're typically liberal. Uh, de Blasio, liberal. Uh, the mayor of Houston, liberal. The mayor of San Francisco. Think of all these major cities. We have a liberal mayor. If they could curtail their gang violence, gun violence would drop dramatically. It would be a non-issue in the United States. But no. Um, they try to make it out like it's... Work. Something... I, I also heard a, a thing like... Of all the, the gun deaths in the United States, so let's say it was 40,000, uh, and I, I think if you actually look at gun crime, there was only a couple hundred that are committed by rifles. And of those, it was like 70 were committed by AR-15s, and yet they're going after them. The new gun, um, what do you call it, the uh, Assault Weapons Ban 2019 is coming out, and it is a doozy. If you are a firearms enthusiast, if you want your second amendment rights then you got to read this bill and then you got to call your senator or your congressman because it's total BS what they're trying to do. It's nothing less than a complete stomp on your liberties and if you don't do something about it you're screwed. Actually, I went to the CDC's website and they have they have stats on everything. Like if every single way you can possibly get sick or die, they have stats on it. And uh and considering that um, I recently turned 42, there's actually, there's an, there's a section, it's like an actuarial section that'll say your chances of dying this year and then like over the next few years. So my chances of dying this year are 0.24%, which isn't bad at all. I didn't think that's bad at all. I mean, that's a quarter of 1%. But then over the next five years, it creeps up to 1.43%. It's so a little higher. And, and that had me concerned. But then I, I always put things in terms of Vegas odds because I like to I like to gamble. And if if you went to Vegas and I told you you had, let's do the math real quick, you had a 98.57 chance of winning on red, uh, you're going to bet on red without even thinking about it. So if, as long as you put your odds into the idea of making a bet, everything seems a lot easier. Or, or it seems a lot better. It doesn't seem as bad. So like in 10 years my odds of dying, so my odds of dying over the next 10 years is 3.66%. No, no, but 3.33%. Again, out of my zone of concern. But now we go out to 10 years and now it's 3% chance. Again, using my Vegas odds, I don't really mind about that. Now 20 years, it jumps way up to 12%. Now, uh, it's lower than I would um, bat an eye against at Vegas, but I want to might start curbing how i'm gonna wager my bet i mean i wouldn't play russian roulette with those odds if i told you if i give you a gun and i was like spin this uh spin this cylinder you got a one in ten chance that you're gonna blow your brains out odds are you'll probably be fine i mean you probably will try it now with something try it with your kid's cap gun but i really i wouldn't play and then once we got to 30 years i've got a one in four chance so that kind of sucks I know this is morbid, but this is the sort of thing I think about when you realize you might be halfway through your life. I can't tell you how many times I lay down, and this is the worst thing to do. You just start going, someday, I'm going to (laughs) die. And it freaks you out, because you think about Every single person, at some point, you're going to have to face the moment of death. It's going to happen, and that freaks the shit out of me. It it doesn't as much, I guess, it used to freak me out more in the past. Now I kind of have legacy, right? Uh, I have kids. That's kind of like, well, if I die, they're gonna go on, and I don't know. Maybe someone will talk about me. Some people face it really, really bravely. Consider the, um, like, think about the firefighters who climbed the twin towers, and they're like, those things are gonna go down, yet they still, they still did it. There was a great movie out called Anthropoid. This really hammered the the idea home to me. Uh, if you haven't watched it, or it's Anthropoid, it's a it's a movie about the resistance. Um, I can't remember. I think they were Czechoslovakian. And their whole thing was they were were going to parachute into Czechoslovakia, and they were going to kill one of Hitler's higher-ups. I think it was like his third in command. And they couldn't take out any of the leaders. But these guys were like, you know what? We're going to do it. And these soldiers and these resistance fighters, all kids. They were all in their 20s. They were part of the operation and they planned and they executed it. And they, with the full understanding that they were going to die, they all had like cyanide capsules sewn into their clothes. They were like, We're going in and we're not coming back. Not like a 50 uh, 50 shot. They knew they were going to die. And that's a mindset that is so foreign to me. I suppose I flew into a lot of dangerous airfields, um, probably the most dangerous airports and countries in the world at one point. And there were bad guys there trying to kill me, but I always assumed I'd make it out. I was young, and I kind of liked the adventure of it, but I never, I, I don't know how I would act if they were like, yeah, we need you to fly this. And they told us this. They taught us this in um, flight school. You know, there's days, so you fly under these certain regulations, right? You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this unless you're basically, you're ordered to. So you can't fly through a thunderstorm unless you have orders that say, yeah, you got to fly through the thunderstorm because national security depends on it. So they, they put it in your head that you could be tasked with doing something that won't bode well for you. But still, I just put it in the back of my head, and I was like, well, if that happens, then that happens. One time, quick story, quick war story. I was, um... We were flying the president of Iraq. So... Our unit or our aircraft was, um, there was two of us. There was two airplanes, and the president was scheduled to fly out, and we were going to go to uh, a little airfield up in Erbil. And Erbil, I guess, up in northern Iraq was really like calm and nice. It was a really nice part of the country. And we were down in Baghdad, and this was in 05, 06. It was really a shitty time to be there. And um, they were having some sort of big summit up there, so they had to move the, the prime minister and his... Uh, I don't know, vice prime minister, up to that area. So what ended up happening is they had to shut the airfield down. So no planes are coming in and out. And everyone who was in the cabinet of um, the Iraqi administration at the time, there were so many leaks and so many assassination attempts that they were they would have to do everything like double blind. They would have to bring people in certain ways and out certain ways. And they, they had to. So they used to have to play things out as if there was a mole. And so they had to always kind of move their chess pieces around to trick people uh, so they wouldn't get assassinated. Well, what they were going to do is they were going to fly a decoy plane up to Erbil. And then the next plane or one of the planes would have the president in. Well, guess who was the decoy plane? It was us. So, uh, and I remember we were lining up and a car bomb had blew up right at the gate of Baghdad International Airport. So you could see the smoke and stuff coming from that area. And people were literally outside the airport ready to shoot down the first airplane that takes off because they thought, they thought the the president was on there. So we took off and we blew out and we just did our thing and we made it. We made it. But I remember being a little, the what we call the pucker factor, thinking this could be it. Someone's going to, just take us out of the sky because it happened um, in those areas so I mean that, that's about as close I guess as I could come to thinking about that but I didn't think about it I, didn't, I mean I didn't think about dying I was just like let's do our job and um, that's it that's all I thought about because I guess if you thought about dying you would lose your mind or something like that so what I I still can't like what mindset does it take like think about suicide bombers they're going they're, they're they're going to die so I guess religion plays a big role in that like if you have a true, true belief that the afterlife is not only a guarantee, but the existence is going to be like eternal happiness, eternal bliss. With an unshaking belief like that, I can understand, I guess, the notion of of sacrificing your life. But I'm relatively agnostic about the afterlife. I don't know. I don't know what's going on after there. And it's that little bit of doubt that makes me say, eh, I want to hang on as long as possible because I'm enjoying my time here. Another another thing i guess you can think about and this part i I understand is unconditional love right i would jump in front of a train for my wife and kids without hesitation i would end my life within a second within my next breath if it if by doing so either saved their lives or um prevented their suffering without hesitation no doubt so so i understand that side of it too and then i guess looking back on my experience in the military when i didn't have children but i had my my brothers in arms in the military and I guess that same level of I guess you'd call it love in moments of true adversity that can extend to folks in this level as well like would I have dove on a grenade to save my team I like to think I would I don't I mean that's a pretty ballsy thing to do but if it's if you're the one that sees the grenade and everyone's gonna die I mean yeah it'd be kind of shitty not to maybe it's all nihilistic I don't know some folks just have a uncanny sense of their place in the cosmos when you think how how short a human life is compared to the extent of the existence and the size of the universe it's like a uh, one quarter of a grain of sand in all the oceans in all the world if you have i guess if you have that sense as well that nihilistic view that what does it mean anyways that's probably another another way you could uh, convince yourself to do something that meant certain death have you ever seen that there's a picture, it's called the Little Blue Speck. And what it looks like, it's black. It's total blackness. And there's this like, I don't want to call it a beam of light, but it, it basically um, is a picture of Earth from I don't know how many billion miles away, but it's pretty far away. And the Earth is literally, it looks like, it looks like when a piece of dust is floating in the light in your room. It's, it looks that small. And that's not even remotely the scale to how small the Earth is. And uh, Carl Sagan has this great—he has this great um, write-up about the speck or the little blue dot, and how how small it is, and compared to the vast greatness of the universe, and how short human existence is, especially historical existence in the grand scheme of the universe, and how everybody that ever loved, and anyone who ever conquered, and every king and every queen, all lived in a blink of an eye. Or I forget how we put it. It's like in a in a fraction of a moment, or a fraction of the life of that little blue speck. And I guess that that puts it into perspective, you know, because when you try to put your importance, or when you try to make importance of your life, what is your end game? Do you want to be like Caesar or Jesus or Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or even Trump? They're 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 really only infamous on this small piece of dust for a fraction of a second. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you're not insta-famous or you're not going to be the first man on the moon it's okay what you what you have to do is shrink the world around you you know extend your lifespan out to be the existence of the universe for you and shrink it down to your friends and to your family and if you don't have friends and family get a pet i don't care and enjoy the feeling of being alive and so maybe that's it maybe just the people that can do that have an uncanny knowledge of their position and their existence in this universe. And that that would be a great place to be. So that's all today, folks. Uh, That was season four, episode two of the Wait What If podcast. I am your host, Kevin Sullivan. Please check out my site over at waitwhatif.com. Check me out on Twitter, Twitter Twitter at wwi.com. And uh, that's all. And we'll see you next week. Like us on Facebook.com slash WWI Podcast and at WWI Podcast on Twitter. Drop us a line at WaitSWhatIfPodcast at Yahoo.com. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Internet Radio. Go forth and expand your reality.